This is WCNY's The Capitol Press Room, and we're turning our attention to the work of a state task force launched this summer that is essentially looking for alternative first responders and responses to traditional police officers in situations involving people suffering from a mental health, alcohol, or drug-related crisis. The examination, referred to as the Daniels Law Task Force, was born out of the 2020 death of Daniel Prude, who died following an encounter with Rochester police while he was in the middle of a mental health crisis. To discuss the work of the task force and the effort to pass Daniels Law, we're joined on the Capitol Press Room by Ruth Lohenkron, Director of Disability Justice at New York Lawyers for the Public Interest and a member of the Daniels Law Coalition. Welcome back to the show, Ruth. Thank you so much. Well, for starters, I touched on this in my introduction, but can you sort of expand on the circumstances that led to the death of Daniel Prude more than three years ago? Sadly, he wasn't the first, nor was he the last in the litany of far too many people who have died at the hands of the police when experiencing a mental health crisis. When I got personally involved in this work on my second day of the job in 2016, it was time together with the horrible shooting death of Deborah Danner in the Bronx. And she too was not the first, nor of course the last. And we have been counting numbers of people in New York City In the last few years alone, there have been 19 people killed at the hands of the police. And advocates in this space recognize that something radically different has to be done. And that radically different thing is to remove the police from the equation and to bring in people who are highly trained, but also come with a background in this space of being what's called peers, people with lived mental health experience, who with a lot of training are the best people to de-escalate a crisis. It's a health matter. It's not a criminal legal matter, not a public safety matter. And so that's the whole focus that the coalition I work with in New York, Correct Crisis Intervention Today, New York City, the Daniels Law Coalition formed afterwards, and what Daniels Law is all about, trying to transform the way both New York City and New York State respond to mental health crises and recognize it as the health crisis it is and respond accordingly. Well, it sounds like you already have a pretty clear picture of what that future should look like. So would you like to do the work of the task force for them right now and kind of tell us what the the future operational response should be for people who might be experiencing a a mental health or alcohol or drug-related crisis? I, I will tell you, we have done a lot of this work. And we're grateful for a task force that gathers the information that we have gathered and presents it. But we are also concerned that they don't spend too much time doing it, that they aren't the reason we're not moving ahead, and that they recognize that a 
steps have already been taken in this regard. So you mentioned the words operational. Um, That's a direct quote, as you know, but now your listeners know from the authority to put the Daniels Law Task Force together. They're supposed to look at the potential operational and financial needs for supporting Daniels Law. So one thing we have not looked at at all is the financial piece of it. Where can we get funding to support this critical new way of responding to mental health crisis? That's something that I find is key. And with respect to the operational, we hope to ply the task force with as much information as we've already gathered My office is working together with Human Rights Watch to do, we hope, an all-encompassing look across the country of every single program that has a non-police mental health crisis response. And some of them are very small, very regional, but we are going to present that information to the task force and hopefully give the task force an assist. And hopefully that means they won't spend the full two and a half years they've been given to do this work, which we are troubled by. Well, yeah. Does this seem like the task force needs to take two plus years to reinvent the wheel? Or or like you said, are there smaller models of what you're thinking about already in existence or things that have already been sketched out that you think could be implemented on a much quicker timeline? Absolutely, we do. So we have taken a look at um, many of these, not all the ones that we're putting together now, all of the smaller ones across the country, all the newer ones since we did the work. But one of the main programs that we have actually modeled our original proposal in New York City on, and that Daniel's Law itself is modeled on, is a program that comes out of Oregon. It's known as CAHOOTS, it's an acronym, and it stands for Crisis Advocacy Helping Out on the Streets, CAHOOTS. And the reason the advocates and the legislators were so excited to be following CAHOOTS is because it works and it has worked for a very long time. So it has been in effect nearly 35 years now. And in that time frame has had just stellar statistics. Do you know that not only in those 35 years has Cahoots not had a single death, they've not even had a single serious injury. So that's a program I want to put my bet on. And that is how other advocates and and quite frankly, universally, all of the disability advocates in this space, and you don't always get everyone together on this, but we are all favoring this approach and favoring um, the approach that is modeled on cahoots. So I want to make sure that the task force, as it does its work, also recognizes that it's doing so within the confines of Daniel's Law, which already draws so heavily from cahoots. And I think the other thing that's important is that along with the statistic of not having had any serious injury, and by the way, that's neither to people they're helping nor to their own staff. And that's very critical because police are also getting hurt if they're not the right people 
to take on this job. So that is avoided in the cahoots model. But the other very important thing is there is a rare time when police are to be brought in. That is clear in uh, Daniel's law and it's clear in how cahoots works. But do you know how often the police were called in when the health teams at cahoots felt a need for police to be called in? They're the ones who determine it, the health team who's responding. And they feel, no, there's a criminal legal aspect here that requires the police. But do you know how often? Fewer than 1% of the time. And that's because they're that good. This is not something that was just invented yesterday by some wild and woolly advocates. This is a strategy that has been in place successfully, primarily in the CAHOOTS model, but we want that model here that can do it the right way and not have people hurt. Well, that last point that you raised was going to be my next question, which is, where do you draw the line for when something goes from a health problem to a public safety problem? Is it just up to the discretion of experts and their experience with these matters? Or is that something that needs to be codified and really narrowly prescribed by policymakers? I would say both. So in other words, Daniel's law is very clear in saying that the only time the police can respond is when there is severe danger and the matter is imminent. So it's not dangerous that someone might is is holding on to a foam rubber toy and is trying to throw it on people. That doesn't really make a dangerousness. It also has to be something imminent. Is that individual going to be undertaking this dangerous act or is it merely a threat that is not at all likely to happen in any kind of imminent time frame. So initially, you do have to have some sort of prescription in that kind of language, very narrowly tailored, which is what Daniel's Law does, which is what this um, city proposal I described before that I've been a part of does. So you have to have that description. But then who's the one who's figuring out if it's serious danger that's imminent, right? Who are the people? And those are the people on the ground. And those are going to be the team of responders. And that is, again, to hearken back to cahoots, what has worked so well. They know when to bring in the police and they have to do it only on the rarest of occasions because they're just that good at de-escalating a crisis. I have to imagine, though, there are still situations where, for whatever reason, police end up responding to something that might not necessarily warrant their attention. So in the future that you envision, if that does happen, do police also need to be trained or at least have that mindset that there are situations that they can walk away from, that they need to call in the appropriate personnel and that they can extricate themselves from those situations? 
I, I really appreciate that question too. Yes, that's absolutely the flip side. And it is anticipated in Daniel's law, in our proposal, and in the realities of the models we're looking at. Again, you know, for instance, with cahoots. And that is that they recognize that if they come into a situation where they have, in essence, been wrongfully called to, or they come upon it on their beat, they also are in a position to hand it off to the more appropriate person. So they, at that point, call in the health responders in our vision and in the realities of these other programs. So it goes both ways for sure. And in part, that's about developing relationships um, and being steeped in it. Um, we spoke at length with the folks in cahoots and they know absolutely that they can call the police when they need them. And the police know absolutely they can call the crisis responders when they need them. Uh, and they know they can rely on each other for that. And I think that, again, a 35-year model shows that it works. These other models around the country, not as long in existence, it works. And, and that's precisely what happens to get the right person at the right place at the right time. Well, finally, turning to the financial part of this equation, assuming a big bag of money doesn't fall from the skies, the realistic assumption is that funding for this type of first response would have to eat into police budgets. And based on politics that we have today and the way people think about first responders for the vast majority of people. That's something that a lot of people would be uncomfortable with and a lot of things that politicians uh, across the aisle would be uncomfortable with. So when you think about convincing people to take their medicine, so to speak, do you envision having to sort of backdoor something like this, this sort of initiative within a police department, within a police department's budget, essentially creating some sort of civilian arm that would essentially be part of this funding. And that way there wouldn't be that argument that police are losing funding from this. Or are you not as devious in terms of your thinking or are you more optimistic about the ability to move funds around? Well, in a way, uh, I'm neither. Um, I do not envision um, that kind of a strategy of, of sort of running it in-house with the police, so to speak. But I also don't think that would be devious. I think it would be just hugely wrong-headed. Okay. Um, I think that it is a major problem um, with how the New York City is running its new pilot program with the acronym of Be Heard, which um, I can't even remember exactly what it stands for. And we were very upset when New York City started the Be Heard program. We continue to be more upset. Why? We anticipated what would happen, that there continues to be a huge police response. Statistics are showing that in their quote-unquote non-police pilot, the police are still responding approximately 85% of the time. That's really a joke to call that a non-police model, right? But we could have anticipated that because 
the whole program is still run out of 911, which involves the police. So we do not want a program that is going anywhere through the police because we would anticipate it would be more of the status quo and the proof is really right there in the Be Heard program. For that, it's an excellent model to show how problematic it is. And it's hardly necessary if you look at the 9-11 piece of it because now you could uh, be utilizing the 988 number that we now have for, for crises. But the bottom line is, no, it would not be appropriate for individuals experiencing mental health crisis to have a program that is tied in with the police in any which way. And quite frankly, I don't believe that police would say they want it. It's another matter that they want money in in their budgets. But we have spoken with a fair number of uh, police, retired police, who will tell you up front, this is not what they went to the academy for. This is not what they turned became police for. It's not what police are generally suited for. Police are generally suited to find danger lurking at every twist and turn. And that is not the approach that's appropriate for trying to de-escalate a crisis. I could tell you, again, without going too far afield, we have looked at body-worn camera footage of instances where individuals experiencing a mental health crisis were killed at the hands of the police. And it is so clear from looking at that, that you had the opposite of de-escalation when you have police there. You had an escalation and it really didn't have to end up in a shooting, but you were not totally surprised when those instances ended up in shooting, given the escalation that the police brought to the table. Well, so if you're not willing to go down a road where the funding for this type of response would be part of, say, a a police budget, and uh, my idea to think about the political ways of getting this funding, how do you envision securing this type of funding? And do you acknowledge that it would have to come at the expense of some level of police funding? Um, No, I, I don't believe that it has to come from the police budget. Why not? Because they're taking over a job that police normally would do. So wouldn't that make sense that we would have to then cut police budgets? You're absolutely right. I I really was going to say something like that next, that it's very logical (laughs) if you are taking something, a job away from them, you can take the the same amount of money away from them. That I, I will say. But we don't feel the need to advocate that as the source of the funding because we believe that there is the need to fund it for the health matter that it is from mental health and health dollars. But also I will say, um, you know, the one thing I talked about the task force that advocates are not happy about is how long they have to do it. But the thing that we are very excited about is the fact that they are exactly supposed to be looking for money for how to run this kind of a program. So in New York City, They initially um, started the program during COVID and found some federal COVID dollars to run that Be Heard program. 
but they continue it and they continue to expand it and they do that with health dollars. And I think that that's, or, or certainly not by taking it away from the police. So I think that that is imminently doable. And we're agnostic in the advocacy space where that money comes from, but we know that ultimately, and this is important too, that the money that is put into this issue, put into Daniel's law, will be money um, that is well spent because it will ultimately save money. If you are not injuring people, you're saving money. If you, and by that I mean the government, is not injuring you, you're saving money. If you're, they're not killing you, that's saving money. If they're not arresting you inappropriately, someone's having a health crisis, police come, ends up in arrest, that's a huge expense. If they are coming and they don't know how to de-escalate and they don't know how to offer other health treatments and they just bring the individual to a psychiatric hospital to commit the person over objection, that's at a huge cost to the government. So having this program will be a great cost savings. And again, you can look at that by looking at some of those other models, cahoots included, that it brings overarching savings to the government. So that's our emphasis when talking about uh, the money angles, if you will, of Daniel's Law. But as to specifics, holding out very high hopes what the task force is going to show us. Well, we've been speaking with Ruth Lowenkron. She's the Director of Disability Justice at New York Lawyers for the Public Interest, and she is a member of the Daniel's Law Coalition. Ruth, thank you so much for making the time. Thank you so much for having me, David. Really appreciate and really appreciate all your excellent questions. Support for the Capitol Press Room provided by the New York State AFL-CIO, a federation of 3,000 unions fighting for working people by keeping New York State union strong. Visit unionstrongny.org for more information. Join us again for Capitol Press Room a production of WCNY Connected, Syracuse.